the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Gemma, I'm part of the staff team here at Belmont as I train up to be a youth worker um, and it's a real pleasure to get to chat with you this evening. Um, I don't think I've ever had to stand up and talk about something which directly opposes what I'm about to do but um, we're going to open up 1 Timothy 2 and hopefully um, garner some wisdom for it for us today. For those of you who were with us last week you'll know that Nick kicked us off in our new series Behind the Front Line. Um, as we take time to study and think about Paul's instructions to his apprentice Timothy in the first of his letters to him. One of the things that we're focusing on this year as a church is how we become more resilient disciples. And in this letter, you'll hopefully come to see that Paul does a really great job of presenting a clear and holistic vision of the church that allows us to dig deeper into some of the foundational principles that can shape our effectiveness as whole life disciples, which I think if we're followers of Jesus is something that we want to be. As Nick said last week, this letter is not only a reminder that what we believe to be true about God and the gospel has to shape the way we do life, but also that our integrity and accountability both inside and outside the church are clear markers as to whether we're truly committed to Jesus in all areas of life, be that individual or corporate. And that really is highlighted in this chapter. Now, I imagine that many of you this evening will be familiar with the various elements of this passage, particularly, I imagine, the more contentious bits. And I want to make clear that although we're going to spend some time addressing it, this talk isn't going to be a defence of or exploration into the role of women in church. You may have guessed by the nature of me being stood here to kind of open up this chapter today that opportunities to teach and lead are open to both men and women at Belmont. And this has been the case for some time now. There are various reasons why Belmont have kind of adopted this position. Some we're going to touch on this evening, but others we're actually not. So if you want to know more, I'd love to encourage you to kind of chat to a member of the leadership team or um, like drop them an email or grab them for a coffee. Or you might want to read the paper that Belmont wrote on, on how they came to that decision. Again, if you chat to a member of the leadership team, they'll be happy to pass that on to you. So we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy 2 this evening. So you might find it helpful to have your Bibles open or on at that passage as we're going to be kind of following the text as we go. Now, this is Paul's instruction to Timothy on the way worship should be conducted in the church in Ephesus. And I think these 15 verses give us a real insight into what church can look like when we, as followers of Christ, gather together, lose sight of the main thing. Um, before we go any further though, I'd actually really love to pray for us if that's okay. And then we'll kind of like crack on in with it. Cool. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you for the power that it has to kind of challenge us and shape us and renew us. We thank you for the way it speaks to us and into the situations that we face. As we come to explore together now this chapter, Lord, um, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'll be with us. Um, speak to me and, and speak to us as we explore together. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and respond to your gentle nudges and your encouragement. Help us as individuals, but also as kind of one body together to be open to your challenge. I pray through that what we hear now, you're going to shape us more into the people that you intended us to be. Amen. Fab. So um, as I hinted at before, I think one of the main things that's going on in this passage is this idea that the church in Ephesus that Timothy has been sent to kind of sort out has lost sight of the main thing and that is Jesus and the sharing of the good news the gospel 
the pursuit and elevation of other things above what Paul and probably we actually would understand to be the core purpose and mission of the church is not only causing issues when it comes to times of like gathered worship and the community of the church itself, but this is also affecting the effectiveness of their mission and the communication of the gospel outside the church. We read in Acts, uh, the beginnings of the church in Ephesus were kind of somewhat volatile, let's go with that. Um, and we know that from Paul's letter to the church, that the, the doctrine, the, the truth of the gospel and the kind of way it shaped life was something the church needed real specific encouragement and teaching on. In the first chapter of 1 Timothy that we explored last week, we we see that the church is still kind of getting caught up in things that aren't the gospel. And, and this is referred to uh, more plainly in the chapter two of Revelation and the rebuke of the church, kind of despite its hard work and good deeds. Now, I think it's important that before we kind of engage with any sort of writing or media in life, that we take the time to kind of step back and try to understand and establish some of the key basics of that work. Things like what's the purpose of this uh, thing that we're engaging with? What's the goal of its author? Um, who's the intended audience? And what, what's the context in which the work is kind of being produced and received? I think it's important to do this because this helps us to understand something more than just at, at surface level. This allows us to kind of take away a picture of what's going on that may be more rounded and nuanced and murkier, but often uh, more realistic and true to life than, than what was presented there and then. Now, the chances are most of us do this already. <laughs> In various aspects of our life, we'll be kind of, we'll be going deeper into what we're engaging with, whether that's adverts and kind of speeches by politicians, various news outlets that we might be getting our, our news from, we'll be aware that often there's more going on than just what is written or just what is kind of presented at the surface. And I think that this should be no dis different when it comes to kind of studying a piece of scripture. I think a big part of us trying to best understand what's in front of us when we read our Bibles is to take a step back and ask ourselves the sort of questions I just mentioned, the, the, the purpose, the, the goal of the author, the intended audience, the context. Because when I think when we do that, um, we can come away with a, a, a fuller and rounder and actually a deeper understanding with the help of the spirit of what the Lord is saying to us. Now, the reason I say that first off is because the answer to some of those questions can really help us understand what is being said in this chapter and what it means for us today as individuals and collectively, because we're a church in 21st century Devon, and this is written to a church in 1st century Greece, right? So firstly, this letter has been sent to a, a specific person with a specific purpose. In, Ephesians, um, in 1 Timothy 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Secondly, the instructions that are given in this chapter are, I would suggest, given to deal with a specific task in the context of a specific situation. Now, the likes of Don Carson or Tim Keller, very intelligent men, would maybe challenge me on this, which is their right to do. Um, they would say that actually we need to be really careful not to categorise this passage or sections of this 
passage as non-transcultural. That means not relevant for our culture today. Yeah? It doesn't kind of not relevant for different cultures. And they say that's in part because Paul roots his comments um, to Timothy in creation and the fall, right at the end of our chapter. Um, and they're two transcultural events but also because it's difficult to really know what we are supposed to understand as as transcultural and not transcultural, right? That said, um, I I think it's clear that these instructions, uh, that these are instructions on what worship in the church in Ephesus looks like, right, in light of what's going on there. Now, that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant for us today. You know, we believe that God speaks through all sorts of scripture, even the bits that that maybe sit less easy with us and that that scripture is always relevant. You know, God always speaks through it. And and that's important. That said, when it comes to interpreting and applying what we read here to our churches and to our faith today, I think it's worth bearing in mind what the original purpose was, the original audience and the original goal of this letter and this section of the letter as we seek to find a really faithful application. Now, I think Paul has two big problems with the Ephesians church in this passage with that in mind. And both of these are coming to light in their times of gathered worship, hence the letter. Firstly, I think there's an issue with power and the love of it above all things. And secondly, I think there's an issue Uh, with witness and the image the church is creating. Now, tensions are brewing within the Ephesians church because of these false teachers that Paul has mentioned in chapter one. Um, And this is causing these kind of unhelpful and quite toxic uh, grasps for power within the church. And there are these sort of prayerful arguments that are are happening in the middle of Sunday worship, right? So Paul's first instruction to Timothy then is to encourage the church to hold regular prayer gatherings and to use them to pray for their leaders and for peace. He says in verse one, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. So why does Paul suggest prayer first? Well, prayer reminds us of who has ultimate power and authority, because prayer forces us to look up and lean on someone who is bigger and greater than ourselves. By encouraging the church in Ephesus to pray for all people, especially those who hold authority over them, it allows the church to step back and gain some much needed perspective, right? As those who proclaim to be of Christ, we should be humble enough to know our place in the created order, but also loving enough to kind of hold concern for the whole world, not just ourselves. The use of like several different words to describe prayer express the kind of the depth and the breadth of prayer that Paul believes is necessary for the church to be doing. Walter Liffield in, in his commentary writes that the instruction to get Timothy to encourage the people to pray for their leaders would have been bold, right? This is a bold ask. But to get them to give thanks for them, gosh, that's a huge request, right? At this time, that is a huge request. But this got me thinking, um, especially after the week the past few weeks we've just had with everything that's kind of coming out. Actually, I think that's a huge request for us sometimes uh, in our church context um, to, to pray for Thanksgiving for, for the leaders and to do that genuinely. And yet Paul is calling us to do it communally as a church to pray for Thanksgiving for the people that are in authority over us. And why does Paul say that we need to do that? Well, it's because uh, when we do that, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
And this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's in 1 Timothy 1, 2-4. The goal of peaceful and quiet lives is not for the benefit of early Christians, right? It's about creating this easier environment for the gospel itself. Because as Tim Mackey writes, um, he says, peace in the land creates an ideal setting for Jesus, Jesus's followers to spread the gospel. That is the good news of of the God that wants to save, that wants to restore, renew and redeem. We do it, right? We do these things because they please God, because he is a God who wants everyone to be saved through trusting his son, the one media, the man Christ Jesus, that's how Paul refers to him. And this is the good news that they should be spreading, right? It's the good news that we, as a community of Christ-loving, Christ-following, Christ-submitting people, should be sharing too. But as Paul will go on to say, the way we behave impacts how well we can do that. Whether that is in the community we create for the gospel in our churches or in the way we portray that to the outside world, right? Now, that's really hard. Because we live in a culture that kind of proclaims that you do you. We live in a in a nation where only 53.6% of people, as of 2018, that's probably different now, proclaim to be Christian. And it can feel exclusive and even offensive to proclaim that one God, one mediator, as Paul does in verse 5. But the reality is, if we are followers of Christ, then that is what we believe. And therefore, that is what we are called to proclaim. And actually, when we step back and we think about it, there is nothing exclusive about that message because the way is not hidden, but open to all who wish to see and hear. And God is not closed off, but open to all who wish to recognise him for all that he is. And that is why Paul proclaims what he proclaims. And that is why he has the authority to instruct what he's instructing, not because of himself, but all because of Jesus, the one who has ultimate authority and the one in whose name authority is gifted. And that is what Paul wants Timothy to remind the church. It is Jesus who gifts authority. It is not us who takes it. Verse 8 and 15 give us a snapshot of how this kind of like jockeying for power is playing out practically. And there are problems with both men and women in the church. Often when we read this passage, we think about the women, don't we? But there are issues with the men too. And and these men and these women are, are quite possibly being influenced by these corrupt teachers that are kind of haunting the church in Ephesus. Paul starts with an instruction for the men in verse 8. He says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and disputing. Here, Paul is shutting down a group of men that seem to be getting drawn into these really angry theological debates during prayer, during communal prayer. And Paul is telling Timothy that these men need to learn how to pray. Now, the I want maybe feels a little bit weaker than the I urge we had earlier or even the I do permit, which is coming later on. But this I want can be understood better as I expect. Therefore, Paul is saying, in light of all I've just said about the fact that there is one God and one media, about the fact that um, there is a need for peace and quiet within the community of God, I expect these men to pray in a way that honours each other and brings harmony rather than division. This is my expectation for the men in this church. 
Now, the lifting up of holy hands, it, that was kind of a Jewish way of praying, which sort of reminded the prayer that they were subject to the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. But also when we, when we lift up our holy hands, we can't conceal anything, right? When our hands are in the air, there can be no double motives. There can be no personal agenda or even hidden sin. In the act of lifting up our hands, we are physically vulnerable. And we are also focused above rather than at our own level, allowing us to remember who we are there for once again. In verse 9 onwards, Paul moves his instructions onto the women in the church. Um, and that's kind of where he goes for the rest of this chapter. But I want to start with verses 9 and 10 first. So Paul says, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess worship in God. Here, Paul is shutting down a group of women in the church who were treating the Sunday gathering like a fashion show, right? They were dressing upscale so that they would shame others who, who couldn't afford um, such a, a wardrobe. They were sort of power dressing, right? Using their clothes to kind of um, suggest that, that they want power. One of the reasons this upsets Paul so much is because of what their clothing is saying about their attitude and because of what it says in that culture. See, a lavish external experience was, uh, appearance was inconsistent with moral uprightness and concern for the poor. Now, that's not too dissimilar to today, I don't think. Um, there's an, a, an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. You can check it out if you like. And it has nearly uh, 270,000 followers. And basically, um, it's a guy who um, kind of watches preachers speak. And what he does is he takes a picture of their, their sneakers, their shoes, and he searches them online and he, he kind of finds out how much these shoes cost. Um, and if you look at each post, it is full of people, Christian and non-Christians, questioning the authenticity of the message of those pictures when they are wearing thousands of dollars on their feet right how can you be stood there telling me how to tithe or telling me that I should be doing more for the poor or serving my community with the gifts that I've been given better when you've got like two thousand pound shoes on your feet now this isn't I don't think Paul being anti-nice clothes or anti-nice jewelry this is Paul saying your outward appearance should not be in conflict with your inner character. And that might be demonstrated in the clothes you wear or like the men it is demonstrated in the way you're praying. As I said before, these women are power dressing, using their clothes as a way to exert power over others, but also to kind of change their identity a bit. Um, there's been some new flats that have been built on Magdalen Roads and I wanted to have a little nose at them because I'm a bit of a nosy person but I knew that if I dressed normally they wouldn't let me in they wouldn't let me because they knew I wouldn't be able to afford it so I put a nice blouse on and a nice skirt on and I went and I went in to have a look I dressed uh, to kind of change the way that that I look to give people a different impression of me and that's what's happening in the church and it's harming the community inside the church and the message outside the church because of the way that they're using their clothes to exert this power over one another. Paul's point is act appropriately for the situation you are in. 
This is a place of worship where everybody is welcome, everybody is accepted, everybody is equal. And your outfit should reflect that, right? Now, we might not have an issue with wearing nice clothes to shame people in our community, but we have to be making sure that we are remembering who we are as family, as one body, as brothers and sisters in the way we conduct and present ourselves. If we are using our clothes or our shoes or our car or our job or our marriage or our family or our house to make others who we are called to prefer and love feel small or lesser, then we have missed the point of what life together is supposed to look like. Paul's urge is to get the church to pray for all people because all people have value and all people matter. His point here is the way we talk, the way we dress, the way we spend our money and the way we behave should reflect that also. In verses 11 and 12, Paul goes on with further instructions for the women. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Here we have Paul shutting down the women again because they are worshipping positions of leadership in the church because those positions are giving them power and this is an issue because there's a high possibility due to the nature of the culture that they are in that they are being they are more vulnerable to this kind of bad theology of the corrupt teachers and that that is coming out in their kind of teaching I think then that this is again is about the women's unhealthy attitude to one another and to power. Firstly, when the passage refers to quietness and submission, this isn't about the men in the congregation, but rather submission to God. And that's really important. The word quiet here can be more accurately translated as leisure. And as N.T. Wright explains, This refers to someone who has the time to study. Women, therefore, have to be given, even if the men may not want to give them, the time, the leisure to study submissively to God, like the men in the congregation. Moreover, in a city where women held much of the religious leadership in the local temple, it is argued by Wright and others that that Paul is saying, that just because you are a woman does not give you the authority to lead this church because more is required than just rituals and sacrifice you need to know and learn and repeat and lead you need to know and learn and read the word before you can teach and lead in it as keller and carson remark The authority that is exercised in the church at this time was primarily through the word. It was not through some hierarchical structure or status. The church recognised word-based authority. You need to know the word because it is the word which carries authority, not the person that's delivering the message or reading it. 